The Dental Download Podcast is your source for insight into dental school, conversations with dentists, specialists, and leaders in the industry. With new episodes every Monday morning, I'm your host, Haley Schultz. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. Welcome back to another episode. This week, we have a guest. She's a super successful general dentist running a practice in Michigan, actually, but she's originally from New York State. She went to University of Buffalo for dental school, did a GPR in New York City, I believe, at a cancer institute, and then she went on to work as an associate for four years before she got into ownership and moved back to Michigan. So that's a little bit of her story. I'll let you listen to the main episode to hear more of her tips about ownership, about getting involved in organized dentistry, finding mentors. Really, we cover a broad range of topics that students that are looking to be general dentists might be interested in. I do quickly want to do a little week recap like I usually do in our intros. So this past week, we had a few exams. We actually had three. So we had two on Monday, and then we had one on Thursday, followed by a quiz. And I also had three days of SimLab as usual. I was able to finish my dentures though, which was very exciting on Friday's lab. And then I also started temporary crowns or provisional crowns in the Monday-Wednesday lab, which is crown and bridge. That was another kind of first for us. It was a bit easier than I expected. I think the biggest key is having a good stent, whether you're using like a plastic stent or using putty or something, because then Once you're filling it up and trimming it, you really shouldn't have any problems with the occlusion. And then we also had some pretty busy things going on extracurricularly. I had some meetings going on with ASDA because we're transitioning the new executive board into their position. So we're trying to meet with everyone and make sure they can express their ideas and we can start getting things planned for the year. And we had two socials, like lunch and learn events, Monday and Tuesday from the same company that was in town for ASDA. And I also had STAB lab or anesthesia lab where we learned to do local anesthesia on each other. So I was just paired up with my classmate and roommate, Amanda. And then our friend that's a D4 was really nice and signed up to mentor that session so that she could work with us. So it was all very comfortable because we had someone that we knew knew what they were doing and was willing to teach us and it went better than I expected. We had some videos to watch beforehand so we kind of had a general idea of the different anesthetics and the different anatomy that you're looking for when you're doing the different types of injections. So on the mandible we just did an IAN which is a inferior alveolar nerve block and then we did a long buckle block and then on the maxillary Um, we did a posterior superior alveolar nerve and then middle superior and anterior superior. And those are just like more of infiltration basically, but we did all of that in one session. So we were quite numb, but we used a mappy vacane. So it doesn't have epinephrine in it. So it wasn't as long lasting and didn't have as many possible contraindications depending what people's medical history was, which is kind of the safest bet to use. But it really went fine. I did pretty well for all of the injections on the maxillary. Oh, we also did the greater palatine um, nerve block there. But all of them went pretty well. Doing them myself on Amanda, I went first. And then um, she did it on me. The only issue I had was I missed on her when I was trying to get the IAN. That's definitely the toughest one. And then Haley was really nice that we share the same name, the D4 that we were working with, because she let me practice on her. So my second go around for her mouth, I was able to get it successfully. So I think it's just going to take more practice. And then Amanda did really well working on me and it really wasn't too uncomfortable. I was a little nervous, but it turned out totally fine. That's pretty much all of the recap for this week. That was kind of a lot all at once, but the exams went pretty well. They weren't super tough classes. They were very like dental-related things, so it wasn't too, too tough for me. This upcoming week, we have more labs. We have a case study. We have, um, what else? One exam, I think, on Wednesday, and then I'm going to be assisting a few times and I'm presenting to another pre-dental club in an evening. That'll just be on Zoom, though, so I don't have to drive anywhere. But 
pretty busy as usual and looking forward to next week's episode is going to be a sit down one like I like to do every once in a while with you all so it's just going to be a breakdown of our schedule for this semester so I'm going to go class by class talking about our D2 fall schedule some of the good things about them some of the things that were maybe challenging how labs and lectures are differing or if classes have both components just kind of let giving you an inside scoop into our dental school schedule right now but that's everything for this week's intro so let's get into the main episode When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everyone. So we have another guest here today, and I'm going to let her introduce herself. Can you just tell us kind of where you're practicing, how long you've been an owner at that practice? Good morning. I'm Dr. Amanda Sheehan, and I own a practice in Waterford, Michigan. I graduated dental school in 2011. I graduated residency in 2012 out of New York. I was a associate dentist for four years before buying my practice in 2016. Can you expand a little bit more on your professional timeline since graduating? You mentioned the residency and working as an associate. Yeah, so I did a 12-month residency at the Cancer Institute in Buffalo at the Roswell Park Cancer Institute. It's a GPR, so those of you who are looking to you know, make a decision after you graduate in Michigan, I don't think they require a residency, um, but in New York, they did. And so it's 12 months of a GPR, which had a focus on treating cancer patients, which is a pretty unique opportunity. And um, you focus on doing, you know, extractions, endo, crown and bridge implants, you know, every residency has a little bit um, different focus. And then I worked in a group practice as an associate for four years where, you know, as an associate, you do pretty much everything. You, know, you do everything that the owner doesn't want to do. <laughs> so you do mm-hmm. um, a lot of extractions, a lot of endo. You do some crowns and some removable. And it really gives you an opportunity to work under a, you know, a, a lead dentist who has experience while you're still trying to gain um, more confidence in your clinical skills. So did you purchase the practice from that dentist that you were associating for? Or did you find a whole new office? How did that work? So I actually found a whole new office. I was um, in negotiations for partnership after being there for about four years. And I just realized that our um, professional goals didn't align. Well, it's really important when you're, you know, first, when you're finding an associateship that you feel like you're going to have um, mentorship, you know, and somebody who you feel is a good dentist that can, you know, help you with your treatment plans, help you with your patients, and that you feel like you can be proud to work for their office. And I do feel that way um, with the place that I was at, but I have a strong desire to continue to push myself and learn more. I have a really strong interest in implant dentistry. So I actually have my diplomat in the International Congress of Oral Implantologists, which is, you know, as, as the highest degree that you can get in implant dentistry. And as I was pursuing and learning more about implants and um, different surgical procedures, I just felt like it wasn't a good fit um, where I was at because that wasn't a real big interest of hers. So I decided I need to go out on my own. So I contacted a, um, a broker and we looked around at different opportunities in the area. And I, you know, came across the office that I bought and it was a retiring doctor who had been there for about 50 years. Um, the real estate was included, which was something that, you know, was attractive to me to begin with. And we did a transition. How long were you working there while the previous owner was still there? So we had no overlap. So if I were to go back and do this all over again, I would tell people that you probably don't want to do that because you go in completely blind. So, you know, I was saying when you um, are looking for a place to be an associate, you want to make sure that you align well with the owner doctor, you know, with treatment plans, you kind of, I mean, when you graduate, you don't really know as much about dentistry as somebody who's been practicing for 20 years. So you have to kind of understand that you're going to get the lead a little bit from, you know, what, whoever the owner is, but at the same time, you have to have that gut feeling where you feel like, okay, 
you know, they're putting the patients first. They're really trying to do the best dentistry that they can. It's not all about the money or, you know, it's all about the patients and you want to make sure when you're meeting with the owner doctor that you have that same kind of philosophy. Um, and when you go and buy a practice, I imagine that that would make a transition a lot easier if you guys are at least on the same page. That was not the case <laughs> for me at all. You know, I bought a, a dentist who had been practicing for 53 years. Now he was all about the patients and he was, you know, he really cared about the patients and things, but his um, level of technology was just um, really, really outdated. And so the kind of care and things that patients were getting was more of reactive dentistry instead of proactive dentistry, meaning like they were waiting for things when it, in, a, in a cleaning, the question would be, is anything bothering you or does anything hurt? If anything didn't hurt, you know, things weren't really um, addressed in proactive manners, like maybe um, the way that I like to do that. So it made a little bit of a bumpy transition. So if I were to give advice to anybody, I would say that you want to have some sort of an overlap. So that way you can see what you're getting yourself into, because I was completely, completely blindsided when, uh, you know, we signed paperwork on Friday, Monday, he's, you know, he was supposed to stay on for about nine months and he didn't, he stayed for three days um, before he left. Um, and it was, it was a free for all. It was really, really, um, traumatic for pretty much everybody involved. Um, but I would, I would recommend having some sort of an overlap, um, if possible. So that way you can make sure that you guys have, you know, alignment in treatments that you recommend for patients, make sure that you're on the same page as far as how you treat gum disease, how you treat cavities, how you treat crown and bridge, you know, those kinds of things when you recommend extractions, just so that the patients aren't completely, you know, completely, I, I don't know how to say it, like whiplash where they come in and they see a new dentist and they're saying, wait a minute, like, this is not at all what I'm used to. And that can be, you know, that can be traumatizing for the patients too. And ultimately, you know, we dentists, we go into dentistry because we care about the patients and we want to do, you know, the best care that we can. If you, if you get these other problems, it can really be a barrier for patients to getting the care that they need. And a strong, strong um, transition would have alleviated a lot of those problems where um, better communication with the seller doc, selling doc and better communication with the patients. I mean, the patients were completely shocked. They had no idea there was a transition, which some of that is legal. You know, they don't want to tell them ahead of time, but make sure that you have a good relationship and you're really comfortable with whoever you're buying the practice from. Kind of going off of that, can we talk a little bit about that transition and managing your office team? How were you able to keep people around on the team or did you hire all new staff and how have you kind of built a good dynamic there? So the biggest thing that the consultant says is don't change anything when you take over the practice. And I think that's good advice too, because you don't want to make too many changes where people are uncomfortable. But at the same time, you know, I said, you have to make sure that you understand what you're getting and do your due diligence. I was very naive in thinking that, you know, I hired a transition consultant. They do the chart review. They do the interviews. You know, you pay a lot of money. They tell you not to make any changes. Um, but when I bought the practice, I just wasn't comfortable with, I mean, there was no digital um, x-rays. In, in dental school, you guys are doing all digital now, right, Haley? Um, for like x-rays, but we still do like digital, we still do traditional like impressions and everything as well as digital. Okay. 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 So in dental school, even in 2011, we were doing all digital x-rays, but we did um, traditional film when we were in like endo lab. <laughs> um, and so he was still on traditional film. And so he was still using like a dip tank, which I'm aging myself and saying that because I don't know that, do you know what a dip tank is? Uh, vaguely familiar. I mean, I've never <laughs> been exposed to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what I was thinking. I'm showing my age right now, but basically it's traditional film and you stick it in the, um, fixing solution and the processing solution, and then you get your x-ray. So, you know, traditional film is really kind of outdated. Obviously that's why schools don't use them anymore. Um, and so when I bought the practice, that was, that was what we had, you know, we didn't have a Panorex machine, which, you know, um, I believe standard of care is for every patient to have a Panorex. And so the reason I bring that up is, you know, you're told by the consultant to not make any changes for six months, but I felt ethically, um, you know, required to make some changes because I felt like I wasn't operating at the proper standard of care. 
so that involved, you know, a huge technology investment in getting computers and all the operatories and digital radiographs. I got a comb beam put in. All of that was done within 60 to 90 days of owning the practice because I just really felt like the patients deserve, you know, the, the best treatment possible, but a certain level um, that's the standard of care, you know, and um, that led to a lot of challenges. So when I bought the practice, his staff had been with him for quite some time. Uh, the oldest employee, I think, had been with him for like 28 years or maybe over 30 years. I don't know, a very long time. And his youngest staff member had been with him, at, I want to say like 10 years. So a very seasoned staff that had been with him for quite some time. Um, he had um, three hygienists, two assistants and two front desks. When they found out that I was taking over the practice, one hygienist just decided she was going to retire. You know, as I'm saying that out loud, I think she had been with him closer to 40 years, um, that hygienist. And so that hygienist didn't even make the transition, never started with me, um, decided she was just going to call it quit. And you can't fault her for that. You know, she had known what she had known for so long, probably didn't want to go through having to make these changes. But um, so my goal was to try to retain the staff as long as possible based off all the advice from the consultant. Um, but I became quickly... Um, aware of the fact that, you know, I was 30 years old buying the practice, maybe it was 31, um, either way. And the youngest team member was in their fifties, mid fifties. So it was very difficult to gain their, um, professional respect, um, and, you know, get them to kind of, um, buy into our vision of, you know, advancing the patients, you know, with the technology and doing proactive dentistry. So, um, and, you know, making sure that we're perio charting the way that we need to, learning the computers, doing the digital radiographs, all of those kinds of things. So the entire clinical team was gone virtually by the time the, the x-rays were in. So by 90 days, all of the clinical team had decided to resign. Um, oh. so that kind of, that kind of left, uh, left me in a, in a situation. Um, yeah. and so I was, having to hire new team members, get them on board. And I was making sure that I was picking people that I felt always most important to put the patient's needs as their number one. I don't ever want somebody in my office that sees money before they see patients. So I would try to interview based off, you know, some questions about ethics and things to make sure that we're aligned. And then to, you know, if they had some experience with digital and things that made it a little bit easier, as I say this, Haley, I'm thinking like, thank God I wasn't opening my practice right now with all of the staffing shortage, because back then, you know, you could put an ad on Indeed and you would get, you know, 20 applicants for hygienists or you would get 20 applicants for um, assistance. <laughs> so thankfully for that. Um, and so, you know, slowly I was able to build a really strong clinical team. Um, and then the admin team, the two people that came with admin, they stayed with me for I want to say a year and a half or so before deciding to retire. And I have to really say that they did a really, really nice job in helping um, transition the patients. Because remember, like I said, the seller doctor, he only stayed for three days. We had a contract that he was supposed to stay for nine months. Um, and he, his wife became ill with cancer. So you can't fault him for having to leave. But um, that made it very challenging. And so we, I relied heavily on the admin team to help um, try to transfer some of the goodwill, meaning, you know, the patients and making sure that they stay with the practice. Um, and we, you know, we lost a good majority of the practice by six months. I think we had lost at least half the practice because, you know, the patients are like, what's this x-ray that you want me to take? I've never had to do that before. What's this oral cancer screening that you're doing? We've never done that before. What do you mean I have a cavity? I haven't had a cavity in 20 years. And so I'm trying to show them on the screen Every room had intraoral cameras to try to show the patients what was going on, to try to help them understand. Um, and by six months in, I mean, half the practice was gone because they, you know, they didn't trust me. They didn't know, you know, there was no real strong transfer of goodwill. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And that's kind of what I was expecting to hear once you explain the situation of the practice that you purchased. <laughs> Well, you, you know, and it was, uh, I, as I start to say it, it sounds almost like unreal because we've come so far, you know, we just had our five-year anniversary in June with the practice, but it was very, very <laughs> taxing and trying 
And in, until you got to go through all of this, it's, uh, it's sort of unbelievable. But, you know, uh, we are prepared in, in dental school to, you know, understand what needs to be done for patients. We just have to work on our communication. I feel like that was maybe something that I could have learned better in school is the way to ex um, explain treatment needs to patients um, and that sort of thing. So that would be probably some advice that I would give um, students or you know, new people who have just graduated school is trying to build their communication skills because there's a way to talk to patients so that they understand what they need because ultimately nobody wants dentistry done. I mean, unless they're getting whitening, right? Or veneers, but people don't want a root canal on their molar. <laughs> people don't want a crown because you know, who wants that? They're paying for, you know, it's very expensive fees and for something that <laughs> if it doesn't hurt them, they don't always understand like why they need things. So using the um, technology with the photos and things that helps, but truthfully, often, you know, patients will say, I don't know what I'm looking at, <laughs> you know, because they don't, you know, to us, we start looking at these pictures and these x-rays, it's almost like so painfully obvious because we're so trained in looking at these things, but we really have to be strong communicators. So that way we can, you know, build rapport with the patient and make sure that they understand what it is that they need. Yeah, I would love to talk more about the patient communication and patient education in a few minutes. I just had a few more questions I wanted to touch on when sure. it comes to your practice and initially when you were preparing to purchase it. So you mentioned you worked with a broker. Did you feel when you started searching for a practice, did you feel like ready, if you will? Like, how did you prepare yourself mentally and financially to make that jump? Okay, so I think dentists or dental students by nature, we're kind of overachievers, right? We like to be feeling like we're doing our best always. I think that's how you survive dental school and you get into dental school. But I feel like I read an article and somewhere in the article said something about the average um, length of time that somebody is a, an associate was three years. And so I was already an associate for three years and I felt like oh my God, I'm behind. And, you know, we as dentists or dental students, like we don't want to be behind, right? We want to feel like we're always doing our best. And so I said, well, maybe I'll give myself, you know, credit because I did a one-year residency. So I should have another year. But I started talking to um, my boss and I was transparent in the beginning that I was looking for a partnership, even though I didn't know what that really meant. But I was looking for, um, you know, an opportunity to become an owner. And, you know, but we never really set out a time frame for that. So that would be something that if you're looking for an associateship and you know you want to either be a partner or um, buy them out or whatever, that you get really clear on that at the, at the beginning, like in the contract, because that started to be a little bit awkward when we first had a conversation about becoming um, a partner. And um, it took her like about a year, maybe a little less, I can't remember, but let's say a year to bring partnership papers to me. And by then I had already decided like, okay, I'm going to leave. I had just decided, you know, I, I read the article that you need to be three years out. And so I said, okay, it's time to buy a practice. Really had no idea what was really involved in that. At the time I was working um, at St. John's one, you know, one morning a week just for um, the head and neck tumor board because of my um, cancer experience. I was, um, working part-time, I want to say at university of Detroit. I can't remember if I was still doing that or not, but I was working six days a week. And I felt like, Oh my gosh, you know, all I ever do is I'm working, I'm working and working. I want to, you know, buy my own practice. So that way I can enjoy life and be a dentist because that's what I thought happens when you buy a practice, you work less, which is the actual complete opposite that shows you how little I knew about <laughs> buying a practice, but I just had in my mind that I was going to buy a practice. Um, I have never been a big spender. So I had already started saving money. Um, and I was always a big producer, even as an associate, um, I produced almost as much as the owner and more, more than double than the other associate. Um, so when you decide that you're going to buy a practice, you have to provide, I want to say it was three months of your production um, reports to the bank. And the bank will actually fund um, 120 or 125% of the price of the practice, as long as you're able to show that you can produce to meet 
whatever the um, production is necessary um, for the payment. And I don't know all the details on that. We worked with um, Bank of America Practice Solutions and they have a whole um, dental department actually who like walks you through exactly what forms and things you need, but um, you'd wanna make sure that you're maintaining any of your production reports to show that you can um, produce enough to make the payments because that's what they're really concerned about. And you really don't need any money down because like I was saying, they, um, they, fund, they funded 125% of the practice price because they give you working capital um, to make sure that you know for the first month or two, I don't know how they calculate it, but that you have enough money to do payroll or to do you know um, other expenses that are going to be coming up. Um, if you wanna buy the, um, the, the real estate, that's where you need to make sure that you have 20% down um, for buying the real estate. And I was very, very fortunate because I didn't have 20% down to, even though I had, I'm not a spender and I'm not a saver, I want to say I had, if I had 20 or 30,000 in savings, that would have been a lot. But I, you know, for the buying the, the building, we needed $125,000 for the down payment. And the, the, um, the old school thought with the, the selling docs, and he was very, very kind and um, he held a personal note for the, um, for the down payment. So I paid him directly to pay off the down payment. And then I had a separate loan with Bank of America for, um, for the building. So you have to be, um, I think that's probably rare what he did um, for me. Uh, although I have a different friend who bought into a practice and she didn't have to even get a bank loan. The selling doctor did a... Um, a private note for her as well. So maybe that's common in the older um, patient, the dental population, I'm not sure, but you wanna be prepared for about 20 or 25% of the real estate in savings. And then as far as <coughs> to buy the practice, your production reports um, are sufficient. But again, you have to remember that was in 2016. I don't know what the, the rules are now with the changes and, and all those kinds of things, but they always say that um, dentists are very safe people to, to get loans because we tend to make our payments. That's what they told me that, you know, they, they tend to, you know, prove most of us because they know that, you know, we're, people are always going to have cavities, right? So there's always going to be dental work. Um, and so that's how, that's how I did it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And it's fortunate, even though he didn't stick around that at least he let you directly purchase the real estate and kind of get a handle on that as time went on. Yeah, you know, that was really something I had in my mind that I wanted to do. And um, I don't know where I got it from or, or what was the reason. But for me, I was concerned about, you know, trying to lease somewhere. And then you spend all this money trying to, you know, build your operatories, do all this stuff. And then what happens? Like they decide you have to move in five years or 10 years or so. I can't really speak to leasing because I don't have any experience in that. Other than I would say it didn't sound attractive to me. It was sounded to me like, you know, you either have an apartment or you buy a house. I'm of the belief I'd rather buy a house, if, you know, if you can. So um, the, I was very fortunate um, for the way that he handled that with me. A few more questions about this kind of startup and transitioning of your practice. So you mentioned that you got a lot of technology, a lot of equipment. How did you figure out which pieces of technology would be a good investment and useful for your patient base? So I met with, um, I used Henry Shine um, and Henry Shine, I made a connection with um, one of the, um, one of the reps before I purchased the practice, but you know, in the, I knew which practice I was buying because even once we decided, okay, I'm going to buy the practice. I think we decided I met him in January I want to say the letter of intent and everything was done by let's say March or so we didn't close until June. So in that, in that interim, I had been you know trying to call and, you know, talk to anybody that would listen because I had no idea what to expect. Right. But I will tell you that in the practice where I was an associate, we transitioned from film to digital when I was there. And we also transitioned from film to digital when I was a resident. So I had some experience um, in making that transition. So I knew that off the bat, like we needed to move to digital radiographs. And so I had met with the technology advisor from shine and he, um, he came to the office with me and we kind of went over different things and he really pushed me to get the intraoral cameras. And at the time we weren't using them where I was. So I didn't really, um, 
I, I just believed him that I needed them. And boy, was he right. Right. But, um, and each camera I want to say was like $5,000 each one. Cause I got like, this is the cavity showing best camera on the market. Um, now cameras have come down in price, but, um, I just believed him and I knew that I wanted to do implants. So I said, instead of getting a Panorex machine, I decided to get a, a CBCT because I, I knew that was going to be necessary in the future. And then of course we needed to get the computer. So I really started with just the basics, um, which was a CBCT x-ray sensors on um, the computers. I want to say it was a, oh, and I also got new chairs because on my first my first day working there, I realized that the chair um, didn't go up and down. And so I looked at the assistant and the, and the light, you know, the overhead light, you can turn it at different angles so you can see in patients' mouths. Well, it was broken and I didn't know that. Um, and so I looked at the assistant and I said, well, what is, you know, what does doc do when he's looking in somebody's mouth? And she says, oh, I just hold the light for him. And I looked at her in complete disbelief thinking, um, so how do you assist if you're holding the light? But that's a whole nother story. So I knew I needed new chairs and lights. Okay. Um, by the time we were all done, I can't even remember how much I spent, but a lot, uh, a lot, <laughs> a lot. And another thing you mentioned was a lot of the patients ended up leaving the office initially because they just, it didn't click for them, all the new style of dentistry and treatments. How yeah. did you eventually develop a patient base that wanted your dentistry and what kind of marketing have you been doing? So initially I just felt like I was running around and putting fires out. I was said that we should change the name of the office that like we put fires out. My office is called Oakland family dental, but uh, I was just, I mean, so there were so many active patients. So what I will tell you is he definitely had more patients than what um, we could handle um, cleanings were before I took over 45 minutes, um, they would get x-rays, you know, occasionally, I don't know what the frequency was, but it wasn't yearly or, uh, biannually it was, I don't know. Um, so we changed the appointments to hour for cleanings because, you know, patients needed x-rays. Everybody needed a Panorex. Everybody, almost everybody needed bite wings. Um, and so by six the first six months, it was like my head was spinning. There was so many like giant cavities that needed to be taken care of. So many fires that needed to be put out that I didn't even really notice the patients leaving. It wasn't until about six months when I was like, wait a minute, we don't have people scheduled for hygiene because you know, they wouldn't be coming back for their second visit. Um, so I decided that I needed to do some um, Google ads. So we started with doing Google AdWords um, and I hired a website company which when I bought the practice, I hired, there was no website. So I hired and made a, um, a website, but I did not make a good choice with my first website company because things were spelled wrong. There was, there were lots of problems, but I was so busy handling the fires again that I didn't even know what was going on. So I started with a, a second company um, that I met through a friend of a friend and we started doing Google AdWords and he said, well, you know, your website's all screwed up. And he started showing me, I think I was on page, I don't know, 34 or something on Google. And so we, I had to buy a new website, which was a big investment. And then we started doing Google AdWords because you have to start to build, um, when you have a new website or a new domain, you have to build, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but I want to say like Google authority. Um, and you don't get that with brand new websites. So we started doing Google ads and it was really actually such a blessing because every time I would come in to see a patient that I had purchased, you know, through the practice, they would have already in their mindset what they felt it should be like, um, right, wrong, somewhere in between. But what I was doing was markedly different. And so there was a little bit of um, difficulty with that. When we started doing Google AdWords, the patients were coming because they already knew it was me. They weren't coming in thinking, oh, they're going to see the seller doc. They knew that they were coming in. They were going to, they wanted a 30 something year old dentist. They didn't want a 70 something year old male dentist. They knew they were coming in to see me. So it was, it was really, um, it was really a breath of fresh air because I wasn't having to constantly sell myself and explain that I'm just as good as the older male doctor or, you know, any of those other things that were going on. And did you use like word of mouth or recommendations from people you met through organized dentistry to find these, like the broker, the people that helped with your marketing? Like, how did you find who you trusted for this advice? 
So I interviewed a couple different brokers just by going on um, Google. I really didn't know anybody. I mean, if you, if I think back to that time in my life, I was working all the time as an associate. The way that I found my associate job was literally going on the MDA because the MDA always has um, like listings for practices. I went on quite a few interviews and then I found a family practice that I felt comfortable. Um, it wasn't a corporate job. I felt comfortable there. And then I just started Googling and I, I met with, I want to say three um, brokers. I think they call themselves transition consultants now. Um, and I actually looked at a couple different practices between the different brokers. And the one that I settled on, I felt comfortable because he said that he referenced both the seller and the buyer, which I'm more seasoned now. So I have different opinions on that, but I felt at the time that that meant, okay, everybody's going to be, you know, it's going to be really fair. We're going to really know um, that everything's done right. Um, but I think at this point it would have been a lot better if I knew people in organized dentistry um, to kind of help me with that. But at the time I, I just did a lot of Googling. How did you end up? Did you, are you from Michigan and then went to dental school in Buffalo, came back to Michigan or what, how did that work? So I grew up in California in the Bay area actually. Okay. And then my dad moved to Michigan um, when I was, I don't know, in junior high or so I went to school from California into uh, into the East Coast. And then when I met my husband, my husband's from Europe, he's from Germany, uh, we decided that he was going to move um, to the United States and he needed a job because, you know, that's important, right? And so I was had prior to meeting my husband, I thought I was going to stay in New York because I really liked New York. Um, but my dad owns a corporation in Detroit. So we decided to move back to Detroit because he could work at my dad's company and I could be a dentist. So that's how I ended up back in Michigan. And truthfully, yeah. after you see all of these um, labor laws and all these things in different states, particularly California, I do feel like Michigan is a great place to have a practice. Yeah, I'm actually from like a few minute drive from your practice. So it's when I saw where you're located in Waterford, I thought that was really exciting. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So a few more things. For your practice, for efficiency, you mentioned when you first started, you had more patients than you could handle because there was a lot of transitioning going on. But now, how do you schedule your day? Do you see multiple columns of patients at once? Are you one patient at a time? So I'm a um, very heavy PPO practice. So in order to make that work, you have to see more than one patient at a time. Um, so right now, I see multiple columns of patients with multiple columns of hygiene. And so it's all about making sure that the schedule is being done based off doctor time. Um, meaning like when you're making a, like, say you're going to make a, a crown appointment, right? So a crown appointment is an hour or an hour and a half, depending on somebody's speed. And the first 10 to 15 minutes is assistant time, right? Because they have to take the x-ray, they have to take the stent, they have to, you know, update the medical history. And then you're ready for doctor time. Doctor comes in, does the numbing. Doctor comes in, does the, you know, the preparation and the impression, you know, all those things. So the beginning part of the appointment, you can be doing something next door. Um, you know, you can do a filling, you can do a different crown, you can do, you know, an impression for a denture or whatever else. So you want to make sure that when you're scheduling, that you're scheduling with mindset of where's the doctor going to be, not how long the patient's going to be in the chair. Of course, that's blocked out, but they have to be staggered in a way because you can only be in so many places at one time. So you have to make sure that it's scheduled to where you're supposed to be as you're moving through the schedule. Did you feel comfortable explaining that to your like admin team when you started the practice? Or is that something you kind of learned as you went? You, I sort of learned it as an associate because okay. when you go to dental school, you know, it's, you're used to as much time as you possibly need. And then you need to go get your instructor and then you need to do this and then you need to do that. But then when you go to residency, you speed up a little bit more because you have to see a certain number of patients per day. But then when I came to an associate, I still had no clue how any of that worked. And thankfully, obviously, you know, that was an established practice. I think that had been there, I don't know, 50 or 60 years. It was the daughter, the, the dad had started it and I was working for the daughter. So it was a very established practice, family practice. Um, so their team had been there for very long, long, long time. The office manager over 30 years. So they taught me 
because, you know, I just did what they said. <laughs> I didn't know any better. I just did. And so that's how you kind of start to learn it. And, you know, trying to explain that to um, people who are, have been in the dental industry, they understand it. If they have admin experience, they get it because, or if they have assisting experience, assistants turned admin, I think are really, really um, strong candidates and very beneficial to the office um, for answering the phones and being able to talk to patients, but understanding how the doctor's schedule works um, because assistants live and breathe it every day. Um, but if it's somebody who's brand new, it's very hard to explain because if they don't even know what is involved in a crown, <laughs> they don't understand uh, how that needs to be scheduled. So what would be helpful is making like a little bit of a template. So that way um, you can say, okay, if there's a crown, they say you should do like a time study. This is how many minutes doctors spends in the room to do the preparation, the core, et cetera. And so then every single procedure has like a, a, a timestamp. So then, you know, okay, so the, it needs 10 minutes ahead of time. It needs 30 minutes in the middle and it needs 30 minutes at the end, you know, so for every procedure, so that way it helps guide them. And then everything in dentistry, you have to just kind of be willing to go with it. <laughs> so, you know, things are going to happen. Patient's going to be late. Some equipment's going to malfunction and your schedule sometimes can just go completely crazy. And so you have to be able to, um, be able to go with it and try to, you know, figure it out as you go. And you mentioned being a heavy fee-for-service practice, oh, sorry, PPO practice, not fee-for-service. Is there like a rationale behind that? Cause I feel like whenever I'm talking to different dentists on this podcast and they all have different practice styles, from a dentist perspective, it seems like fee-for-service can kind of be a dream for you and your team, but from the patient perspective, I could see it being very unappealing. So what was kind of your thought process for setting that up? So the way that I bought the practice, it was a, a PPO practice. Um, and so that was the way that we transitioned. And I'll tell you that over the last three to four years, we've made a lot of changes. We're now out of network with quite a few insurance companies um, as well. Um, we're not completely fee for service. I've invested so much time in my, um, CE that we do the bigger cases. We do full mouth implants, full mouth crown and bridge, um, all of those things. So we're making the transition to becoming, um, fee for service at some point. Um, but truthfully, you just have to do what feels, feels right for you. You know, we have a lot of patients who, you know, they call and they ask, like, do you take this insurance? And if you're able to get them in the door by taking their insurance, but then whatever they need is probably not a covered benefit. That's, you know, something that is something that is a, a strategy that um, a lot of dentists utilize as well. I don't know how to really tell somebody how to decide that, but I think when you're learning in the beginning, you have to understand that when I'm treating my out of network patients or I'm treating like a high end cosmetic procedure, you have to be able to deliver. That's not only communication skills, but like your work, everything needs to be on point. So when you're beginning starting as an associate, um, you still have to develop better hand skills. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. And maybe I was just a slow learner, but uh, you know, I graduate, of course we do, we know how to do class twos, we know how to do crowns and we know how to take x-rays, but you know, there's, it takes practice and the more that you practice, the better you get. And then, um, make the transition, you know, once you feel like you're able to offer, um, the patients what they deserve when they're, you know, full fee for service patients. Does okay, that make that, sense? Yeah, that actually does. It definitely clears up a lot of things for me. So looking back, can you think of any, I guess, like com dental students listening to this podcast, they're probably thinking, okay, I might do a residency. I might go work as an associate. Eventually I want to be an owner, but what kind of benchmarks do you think they should be aiming for to know that they're ready to start working on their own, whether that's like certain speeds or certain things that they really need to understand well? I feel like it's a really, um, I don't know how you say this, but a really um, touchy subject when you start talking about, oh, you should have a residency, you should not have a residency. I think that you're going to find a lot of different opinions on that. Um, those yeah. who went through residencies probably feel like it's absolutely necessary because you graduate dental school and depending on your program is going to be how much exposure you get to different clinical, um, you know, treatments and things. Right. But when I graduated dental school and I'm being completely honest, Haley, when I graduated dental school, I thought I was the best dentist on the face of the earth. I was like, I know everything about dentistry. I was in the top 10 for graduating into the clinic 
I thought I knew everything about dentistry and I was the best thing. Patients liked me. I thought I did a really good job. And I still, I went to the residency. I went to the residency because of actually one of my mentors, one of my um, teachers was like, you know, Amanda, what are you going to do next year? I said, what do you mean? He says, are you going to do a residency? I said, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. He's like, you definitely need to do a residency. So I said, okay, I'll do a residency. And um, I decided to do it at the Cancer Institute. And my whole reason for doing that was because in my mind, I knew everything about dentistry. I, again, I'm top 10. I always do really well in clinic. I need to learn about how to treat medicine. So I said, where better would you learn that than in a cancer institute, right? So I went to treat cancer patients. I got to residency. I wasn't even there a week. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a lot more complicated than I realized because you are supervised in residency, but not like you are in dental school. You know, it's been a while since I've been in dental school, but you know, put your rubber dam on, call your instructor. Okay. Do your anesthetic, call your instructor, do your preparation. I mean, you get checked every single step. Right. And so then when you get to residency, you call them when you need them. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, like I, is this right? Like, did I get all the cavity out? Did I, is there still decay left? Like what's going on here? Um, so I went through residency and when I graduated residency, you know, we did a lot of, it was a cancer hospital. So patients are going through um, radiation treatment or, you know, chemotherapy. And we're doing a lot of full mouth extractions, um, you know, a lot of removable because that's what the patients need. Right. So I thought I can do pretty much any sort of extraction, any sort of anything. I got this because I'm now the best dentist on the face of the earth. This is my mind. This is what I'm thinking. Right. So I went very confident into um, my interviews as an associate saying, I've got a 12 month residency. I can do any sort of impacted, partially impacted, any sort of anything. And then you get into being an associate and you have even less supervision than you did as a resident. I mean, some, some of my friends were put into practices with no owner doc to be even found. I mean, they're, if it's a multiple, you know, um, location, they, they, um, have an owner doc, maybe in a different practice. And where I was working, she had two locations. So three days a week, I worked in the main location. And then one day a week, I worked in the satellite where I was alone. And I mean, that was kind of traumatizing because I found out really quick that I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I knew where I couldn't get some teeth out because, you know, in residency, a lot of the oral surgery that you're doing is, you know, uh, big cavities and uh, not endo treated post teeth, you know, like what you see in general practice, general practice, people want to save their teeth. You know, they've gone through, they've had every root canal, every post possible before they're letting you pull it out. And it's, um, it's a lot of a different technique. Um, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And I feel like exactly what you said, it's kind of a personal thing, figuring out if, and when you're ready and you might think you're ready or think you're very strong at things. And then every new phase, you realize that there's still more to learn and a different expectation, I guess. And I don't want to be a big negative Nancy because I feel like <laughs> I'm sort of being a negative Nancy, but at some point you have to say to yourself, okay, I've gone through all this training. I've done all of these things. You have to believe in yourself and you have to say, I can do it. But what I would recommend is making sure that you set yourself up with some mentors or some safeguards, have a good relationship with your specialists. You know, I've broken files and endo I've had, I can't get a tooth out. And then, you know, I'm out in this practice by myself. Now, you know, I've now I have five years of experience before I buy the practice. Right. And I, I mean, you, you have to have people who can bail you out because now there's no owner doctor to call. <laughs> there's nobody to say, um, I broke a root tip and I can't get it out. You have to have a good relationship with your um, specialists. Do you know what I mean? So I would say that um, when believe in yourself, I mean, you wouldn't graduate dental school if you couldn't do it. They're not going to give you a degree if you're not capable of doing it, but you want to set yourself up with some safety nets so that when you get into trouble, because you will, that you can help handle it in the best way for the patients. And last thing quickly to ask you mentioning, like having connections and people to go to, I know you're very involved in organized dentistry through a few different organizations. Can you just mm -hmm. talk about why you got involved in it? Things that have benefited you, maybe ways that you're giving back through it. Yeah. So the first thing I did when I moved back from, uh, from New York to Michigan is I looked up Oakland County there's a dental society. And I became um, friendly with the executive director, John Kmar. And so he introduced me 
um, to a group of women dentists and I joined the women in dentistry. In fact, we have an annual meeting. It's coming up in November and we do it um, every year where we have a special um, meeting where we, you know, discuss about, and we have a presentation about different, you know, hot topics in dentistry um, and different, um, and it's a good way for female dentists to, you know, get together, have dinner, make those connections because it's really important, like you said. Um, and I'm also on the Michigan board for the Academy of General Dentistry. And I joined the Academy of General Dentistry, I want to say five or six years ago. At first, I didn't know what it was because we didn't have a strong chapter in my dental school. Um, like you guys have at U of M now, you guys have a, a chapter and University of Detroit has a good chapter. Um, it's really important because the general dentist has a lot that, you know, we have to be responsible for. We have to be the quarterbacks for our patients. And I decided that I wanted to, you know, contribute and try to help elevate other general dentists so that we can be the best that we can be for our patients and to help with the networking. Um, so I would advise, you know, trying to figure out who your local um, society is. So that way you can go to the meetings. They have meetings, you know, if it's not every month, it's every other month. Um, so that way you can start to network. And that's how you meet people, you know, who want to retire, who, you know, maybe want to transition or looking for associates. You can look for obviously the publications and things, but just to start to get your feet wet because dentistry can be a very, very lonely thing when you're in a practice by yourself. You know, you're the only dentist there. You're, you have hygienists and a dental assistant that you can talk to, but it's different than, you know, dealing with other dentists that understand the struggles that we go through and can help encourage you. So I would look for the, you know, the AGD um, group because every state has one. And we have, you know, local memberships and then, you know, the, the local, um, you know, either we have Oakland County, of course, but whatever county you're in, they're going to have it, a local membership and get as, as active in it as you possibly can in the beginning, go to those meetings, even though it's uncomfortable at first, because you don't know anybody, but you immediately, when you sit down at a table, dentists, we're nice people, right? We say, hi, you know, introduce yourself, et cetera. And it really will help give you that, um, that fostering very nice safety net and, you know, other people that understand what's going on. And if you have a problem that you can call. That makes a lot of sense. So that was in itself great advice for dental students, but do you have any closing thoughts or final advice you want to give to dental students listening? So the biggest thing I would say is believe in yourself and invest in yourself. I have a lot of friends who um, still even being 10 years out decided that they you know, you, you, you become a, a, an associate and you make a lot of money. I mean, you, you right off the bat, you do, because, you know, you're a, a, a dentist, there's people always have cavities, right? And so some of those dentists decided that they would start living the life, you know, of a dentist. And so they, you know, spend every free moment buying who knows what and doing whatever else. My biggest advice is invest in yourself. Um, try to get to those CEs. I have almost 3000 hours in continuing education. Um, and I've been out of school for 10 years, Michigan, I think requires 30 hours. Um, I don't know if it's a year or what it is, but invest in yourself and learning more and continuing to grow because that's the best thing that you can do, obviously professionally for your patients, but also, um, to help build more skills so that way you can start getting to that next level as soon as possible. So never stop learning. Don't doubt yourself. Always take the opportunity to learn more because it's going to be putting you in such a better position to where you can do the dentistry that you love and that you can help patients the best way possible. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for everything that you shared with me and with people listening today. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Haley.